Aren't you glad the Lord went out looking for that one lost sheep? Because that's who we are, isn't it? We're that one lost sheep that the Lord went out to find. Praise God that he did in his grace. This morning, we're looking at a very familiar portion of scripture in Luke chapter 15, a parable that Jesus tells about that 90 and 9 sheep that he had in his pen, but one that was lost, the parable of the lost sheep, and also uh, the parable of the lost coin, very similar to it. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. The theme of both of the parables is seeking the lost. Luke tells us in Luke 15, in verse number 1, he says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to look to your word, to listen to the wisdom of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, to learn about your gracious and merciful character as the great shepherd, the good shepherd who goes searching for his sheep. God, help us to learn of you so that we uh, might be changed to be made more in your likeness and in the image of Christ. Father, may your spirit do his work through your word today. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. This morning, we come to one of those very familiar passages in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, Luke is the only one that records this set of parables in Luke chapter 15. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son at the end of Luke 15. All three parables really go together to form a unit and to teach one central truth about the character of God. And this morning, our focus is on the first two of those parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But really, before we launch into the parable itself that Jesus tells about the sheep, I want us to look at the setting that Luke describes for us in verses one and two. He says that the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. 
Every time I come across this phrase in the Gospels, it, it strikes me because it's almost as if there was this particular hatred for the tax collectors. Nobody likes the IRS, right? Nobody likes the tax collector. But in Israel, this was different. The tax collectors in Israel were different because for several reasons. One, uh, we might think that the government is robbing us, but in the ancient world in Israel, the tax collectors actually did. They, they were notorious for overcharging people. So basically the way it worked in the Roman system is there were different regions, different precincts that were basically bidded out to those who wanted to be responsible for collecting taxes for that province. And so they would bid it out and they would say, uh, I am responsible for collecting X number of dollars of tax from this area. Well, whatever they could get over and above that, that was theirs. And so there was very little accountability from the Roman government as long as the Roman government got what that tax collector said he could glean from that area. And so they were notorious for being greedy, for being thieves, and they were pretty much all around hated by the Israelite people. But not only were they hated because they were seen to be greedy and thieving, but they were also hated because they were seen as basically collaborators with the Roman government or even traitors because they were acting as kind of a go-between between the people of Israel and the Roman Empire. So they were hated for that reason too. And also on top of that, they regularly came into contact with Gentiles and so were considered unclean. So it's almost like you have all sinners and then you have like a special group of sinners that we want to particularly highlight, namely the tax collectors. And so you had this group of people that were around Jesus they were what you might say are the riffraff of society. The ones that nobody wanted to be around, the ones that nobody liked, the ones that were looked down upon in society, the undesirables, if you will. But where were they? They were with Jesus, weren't they? They were with Jesus. And notice this, Jesus welcomed them. Jesus welcomed them. He invited them to his presence. He, he wanted them to come and listen to his teaching it was not uncommon for Jesus to go to the home of a tax collector or a sinner and have a meal with them. We know from his calling of Levi or Matthew, one of his 12 disciples, that Matthew was a tax collector. And as soon as Jesus called him to be one of his disciples, the first thing Matthew did was invite Jesus to his home and invite all of his other tax collector buddies to come and be there. And Jesus willingly went and shared the truth, shared the gospel, shared the kingdom of God with Matthew and his undesirable friends, if you will. All of these people are around Jesus and Jesus welcomes them and he wants to engage them and tell them the truth. But notice the attitude of the Pharisees in verse number two. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, verse two is important because really it is the reason for why Jesus tells the next three parables. So the next three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, 
all three of those parables have verse two in the background. So we have to remember that. Why is Jesus saying this? Why is he giving us these stories? He's confronting this mindset in verse number two. And really this is, we should be expecting something like this if we've been tracking with the way that the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees has been going over the last couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Because over the last couple of chapters in the Gospel of Luke, that tension between Jesus and the religious leadership has been growing, hasn't it? It's been growing. They've been setting traps for Jesus. Come over here and have lunch in my house, said a Pharisee, and I'm going to provide for you an opportunity to heal somebody on the Sabbath day, and we're going to lay a trap for you. They were constantly looking for a way to set Jesus up, to look for something to entrap him, to condemn him. The relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees is tense, is a mild way of putting it. Jesus knows their thoughts here. Verse 2, when it says they muttered, basically they're saying to themselves. They're, They're kind of under their breath saying or saying to each other, why is he eating with tax collectors, with sinners? Jesus knows their thoughts, doesn't he? He knows their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking. And he tells these parables to address their heart, to show what's really wrong with their heart. And what's wrong with their heart is self-righteousness. If we, as Christians, we as people who are gathered here in church this morning, if we're going to learn the lesson that Jesus wants us to learn from these parables, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I Pharisee-like in the way that I look at other people? And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I consider myself to be good and certain other people, not good? Or at least, do I consider myself to be better than other people? How often do, we have to ask this in our hearts, how often do I compare myself with other people and say, well, yes, I know I have my faults, but at least I don't fill in the blank. If we regularly have those kinds of thoughts and say those kinds of things, we're very much in the same line of thinking as the Pharisees. Because that was their thought. Their thought was, we're we're rule keepers, we're law keepers, we're righteous people, we're pious, we're holy. Look at these undesirable people that Jesus is hanging out with. Now, we might not, in our setting, we might not think, well tax collectors, people that work for the IRS, they're notorious sinners. That's not our culture. That's not our setting, right? But we could probably list off several things in our culture, in our setting, that we would regard as particularly sinful. Let's start listing a few. Thieves, right? Criminals, really any kind of criminal. What about, what about a, a criminal? What about an ex-con, if you will? An ex-convict who has served time, been released, 
and is now out in society, how do we view that person? What about someone who is addicted to drugs? How do we view that person? Do we think of ourselves as better than that person? What about someone addicted to alcohol? What about uh, someone who is unfaithful to their spouse? We say, I would never do that. I'm better than that person. What about, and this is front and center in our culture right now, what about those that are uh, engaged in immoral sexual activity, such as homosexuality, or, or trying to bend the natural order of things that God has created and say, I am someone of another gender. Are we tempted to say, I am better than that person? We have to look in our hearts. Because Jesus is addressing that mindset of, yes, I can see how God's grace would fall on me, but I can't see how God's grace would fall on this person. Fill in the blank. That's how the Pharisees were thinking. And Jesus is addressing that mindset in these parables. And so he tells the parable in verse number three. He says, Jesus told in this parable, he said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now for Jesus' audience, this imagery of a shepherd and sheep was very familiar to them. That was by by and large the default occupation of many, many Israelites was a shepherd. And so even if they weren't a shepherd, they understood it. They, they understood the context because it was all around them. Shepherding sheep was a part of Israel's DNA, if you will. And so he gives this illustration. What about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep? He can't find one. He doesn't have this attitude. Well, at least I have 99, right? No, that's not how he thinks. The shepherd thinks I'm missing one. And he cares for that lost sheep. And he goes out to find it. And he leaves the 99, perhaps in a safe place, perhaps with a hired hand. And he goes out and he searches high and far for this lost sheep. And he brings it home. So he is the one seeking, isn't he? He's the one pursuing. He's the one going out. He's the one making the effort to find this lost sheep because he cares for it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. This one lost sheep, was of such importance that he would leave all the rest and go to this great effort to find this one. And then when he found that one, he would bring it home and in in essence, have a party. I found it. Isn't this incredible? Rejoice with me that I found my sheep. Now, here's the point that Jesus is making. And and I love when Jesus does this because he, he takes away all the cloudiness 
and mystery of what the interpretation of a parable is, Jesus tells us what the lesson of this parable is in verse 7. I'll tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. There's rejoicing in heaven, meaning God, right? God in all of heaven, there is rejoicing when one sinner comes home, when one sinner repents. A sinner or a tax collector like Jesus was surrounded by that day. The Pharisees are muttering, why is he hanging around these sinners and tax collectors? And he basically confronts them head on and says, God is happy with what I am doing right now because God rejoices in heaven if even one of these sinners that are around me right now comes home and repents and finds life. So he's confronting the Pharisees and really revealing to them the heart of God, his heart of of grace, his heart of love, his heart of compassion for the lost. And really what he's doing is he is contrasting the heart of the Pharisees with the heart of God. You have this heart, but here's the heart of God. And they're not the same. You look down on these people and say, why am I hanging around these people? You have self-righteous, self-righteous indignation toward these people. God has compassion toward these people. Who's more righteous, God or the Pharisees? God is, isn't he? Even the Pharisees would have to admit that. God is righteous. God is holy. Be blasphemed to say anything otherwise. And yet God does not look down with contempt upon these sinners that Jesus is reaching. He looks down on them with compassion and with love. And again, as often in Jesus' parables, he compares the greater to the lesser. If God can have this kind of a mindset, who is that infinitely holy and righteous and takes compassion and love on these lowliest of sinners, then what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why cannot you have compassion and mercy toward these sinners like God? Here's the implication. If God were really your father, then wouldn't you have the heart of God toward these sinners? All through the last couple of chapters, he's been confronting the Pharisees with their self-righteousness and with their mindset that they thought they were in. They, were, they thought they were in the kingdom of God and all these other people, sinners and tax collectors and surely Gentiles, they're on the outside. But Jesus flips it on its head and says, no, actually because of your self-righteousness and your judgmentalism, your hypocrisy, you're on the outside and God's grace is falling on these the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame, the Gentiles, the tax collectors, the sinners, and they're going to be in and you're going to be out because your mindset, your attitude right now is showing that you don't have the heart of God. And one of the issues of verse number seven is where it says at the end, rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents more than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And that kind of brings up the question, are there people 
who don't need to repent. I think if we come away with that thought from this parable, I think we've overanalyzed it. Because Jesus is not saying here, there are not, there are not people who don't need to repent. We're all sinners, aren't we? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stand in need of repentance. Even the Pharisees, your self-righteousness, they need repentance. But the point is, the Pharisees didn't think they needed it, did they? This is very much like what Jesus says elsewhere when he says, I came to heal the sick. That the physician comes to heal the sick, not those who are well. By that, he was not saying the Pharisees are well. By that, he was saying the Pharisees think they're well. And they don't see themselves as in need of a physician. Here, the Pharisees don't see themselves in need of, some, of being saved, of being found, because they don't see themselves as being lost. We'll see this even more clearly in the third parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the prodigal son. The Pharisee is very much characterized in that parable by the older brother in that parable. And we'll see that self-righteous mindset in that parable. But here, when he says over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent, it's kind of a backhanded way of referring to the Pharisees of those who don't think they need to repent or those who don't think they need a physician because they think they're well. They're not going to be coming. But God is going to find the lost, the sick, the blind, the maimed, and he's going to bring them in. This parable reveals the heart of God for us as sinners, and it also reveals the gracious initiative of God in bringing the lost sinner home, doesn't it? This is exactly what God does for us. We are, as Isaiah reminds us, we are all like sheep. We're all like sheep who have gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that is on Christ, the iniquity of of us all. We're all lost sheep, aren't we? We're all lost sheep. How do we come home? The only way we come home is if God comes out and lovingly, like a shepherd, calls us home. He goes out and he finds us. We're lying in a ditch somewhere, broken and bleeding, and he picks us up and he puts us on his shoulder and he carries us home. That is the picture of the gospel and what God does for us through the Holy Spirit, through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. According to the Bible, we are spiritually dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. There is no spiritual life in us whatsoever. There is no inclination in us to seek God. Romans 3, 10 to 12. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek after God. Who does the seeking? God does. God comes and he looks for us and he sends the Holy Spirit and the word of God and he awakens our hearts and he calls us and those who hear the voice of the Son of God live. They hear his voice. They hear the voice of the shepherd, John chapter 10, and they come out and they follow me, Jesus says. And I give unto them eternal life. God's grace for the sinner on display. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb 
to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It's interesting, isn't it, that we are compared to sheep in verse 6, but so is Jesus in verse number 7. We are lost sheep, but Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the one who comes and takes our place so that we might be found by the grace of God. So God rejoices when even one sinner repents. That's the value of one soul, isn't it? One soul. If we as a church invest our time and energies and efforts into having worship and preaching, in uh, having maybe a vacation Bible school, whatever it is, whatever effort, whatever work is involved in that, and as a result of it, one person comes home to God, it's worth it, isn't it? It's worth it. This is the heart of God for sinners. Jesus tells another parable, very, very similar to this in terms of its point in verses eight and nine. He says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Now, for us, we think, big deal, a coin. We have to put ourselves in that context. Hey, these coins were valuable. One way of understanding this passage, and I've read this in certain commentaries and suggested this interpretation that one of the reasons why these coins were so valuable is because they were not just monetarily valuable, but they were valuable because of what they represented. One suggested that perhaps it was uh, uh, her, her marriage dowry is in essence. And so it was very important for what it represented. But even if it's just money, the word that's used here for this silver coin is really a day's wage. And interestingly enough, is about how much one sheep would cost. Would you, if you lost a $100 bill, go scouring your house looking for it? You probably would. $100, $200, whatever a daily wage is, you'd go looking for that to find that. There is value in this. And so she goes looking for it. She sweeps the house. She lights a lamp. She's searching everywhere. And really the difference between this parable and the other parable of the lost sheep is this one emphasizes the, the degree to which the woman goes to seek for this lost coin. It emphasizes the lengths she goes to to seek, to look everywhere. And so she sweeps, she lights a lamp, she looks everywhere. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And the point is the same of the parable of the lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here's where I want us to think about how this message applies to us. This parable, both of these parables, and and the parable that we're going to look at next time, both of these parables 
communicate a central point about the character of God, don't they? They communicate this central point about the character of God, and that is that God is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is compassionate, and that there is genuine joy with God and with his angelic beings when one lost sinner repents and comes home. So there is something to learn here about the character of God. But that then in turn is to influence our response to the way that we view people, isn't it? Because remember, remember the setting for these parables? What's the setting for these parables? The setting for these parables is what, what brought them about is a negative response toward people from the Pharisees. That's what brought these parables about. So the parables have not only a lesson about the character of God, but they have a personal lesson to us and our hearts about how we view people, how we respond to people. Going back to the beginning of the message, do we have a self-righteous heart? How do we respond? How do we view other people that are engaged in a lifestyle, activities, behaviors that we know from Scripture are wrong. Let us never take the mindset of, I shouldn't go and hang around those people or bring the gospel to those people because I'm better than them or because uh, I don't think God's grace can find them. They're too far beyond the reach of God's grace. Let us never have that mindset because that is not a biblical mindset. And here's what Jesus did. In order to show that he had a heart for the lost, that's where he was, right? That's where he was. So let me ask, by way of application, this question. How many unbelievers do we know? How many unbelievers, non-Christian, non-church-going people do we know? How much, how often do we rub shoulders, if you will, with non-church-going, non-Christian people? When was the last time we had someone who was not a Christian not a believer in our home to have a meal with us. When was the last time we sat down with a non-Christian, an unbeliever, maybe at a restaurant, had a meal with them, had a conversation with them? And I know the thought is, well, doesn't the Bible say to not hang around the ungodly? Proverbs says that, and maybe the Pharisees were thinking that. We're not supposed to be hanging around the ungodly. Now, there's a difference between being influenced by the world and influencing the world right? Jesus said in John 17, don't take my people out of the world, but keep the world out of them. So they're supposed to still be in the world, which means we're still supposed to rub shoulders with unbelievers and with the ungodly, but we are supposed to be salt and light and influencing them and drawing them to Christ. So the mission of Jesus was to seek and to save that which was lost, wasn't it? 
The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, where do you have to be if you're going to find the lost? You have to be where the lost are. And I think that's the lesson for us, is if we're going to lead unbelievers home to God, then we have to go out and find them where they are. Jesus was the shepherd who went out and found the lost and he brought them home. If we are going to be the extensions of the grace of God and be shepherds for God, we need to go out and find the lost where they are and bring them home. And that means that we need to rub shoulders with unbelievers and have conversations with unbelievers. And we need to seek to draw them in through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that God will help us to have the right mindset. And remember that every single one of us, every one of us stands in need of grace. Every one of us is lost without the grace of God. Every one of us is the one lost sheep who needed to be brought home by God. And now that we have been found, he is sending us out again to go help bring other lost sheep home. And so we need to go find where they are and we need to be ministering to them where they are and seeking to bring them home so that there may be joy in heaven. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you that we've had the few minutes that we've had this morning to look to your word. Lord, we confess that there are times when we are proud. There are times when we are self-righteous. There are times when we do unfavorably compare ourselves to others and think of ourselves as better, higher than those around us. We often think of our own faults and mistakes and sins as somehow less than, not as serious as the mistakes and the sins and the faults of others. Lord, we confess our self-righteousness and our pride to you, and we pray that you would forgive us and that you would also change us, continue to mold and shape our hearts so that it might more closely reflect your heart, Father, and the heart of Christ, who welcomed tax collectors and sinners and ate with them. Father, help us to be your instruments of grace and going out into a lost world and bringing your lost sheep home. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.